Robert Frank said, the eye should learn to listen before it looks. Joel Merowat said, it's appetite. You have to be hungry for these things before you can see it. And I think this goes perfectly with today's episode. Welcome to Escaping the Ordinary Podcast. If you are ready to be the best version of yourself and level up your life, stay tuned as we interview special guests who will bring you all of the latest and greatest tips, skills, and know-how to make you the best that you can be. We know that you have it in you, and we are going to show you how with your host, Ryan T. So no introduction is going to give Sai the recognition this man deserves. When I think of Sai, words that come to mind are genius, film guru, knowledge, friend, generous, vulnerable, loving, sharing, craftsman, lover of fine things, and a butterfly breeder. Sai's a person that's taught me so much about myself, creativity, and the list can go on. Once you meet this beautiful man, you'll feel at ease. He teaches so much about life without even knowing it. Sai is the most generous person I've ever met. I was lucky enough to spend a few nights at his property in Auckland last year and also spent some time on a volcano at one of his workshops. Sai has won half of Bailey and Moore, which together with his incredible wife, Sophia, have formed this photography duo powerhouse. After checking out Bailey and Moore, you'll understand what I mean when I say timeless. I'm so thrilled to chat with a great friend, personal mentor, and all-round good guy, the man Cy Moore. Welcome, dude. Whoa, I'm tearing up. Who's this guy? <laughs> it sounds like the butterfly breeding vibe's definitely taken a bit of a hit this year, you know, but I think we're on a, we're on a comeback. We did have a few pretty good years of big butterfly crops. So tell me, I remember when I was there last year, I, I seen those crops and I seen those butterflies, so... COVID's got them hiding, have it? I tried to move the swan plant patch and probably I should have planned it a bit better, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. When you've got a lot of butterflies and you realize not a lot of other people are really providing butterfly habitat in the neighborhood, and then you see butterflies flying around your street and you're pretty sure that's our, that's our butterfly. <laughs> or you'll see your kids like playing with a butterfly and you just like back off kid. I put a lot of time into that. <laughs> You know, it's hard, you know, who owns the insects? Who does, really? Yeah. I can tell you, me, I own the insects. Yeah, Sai does, Sai, for sure. So you're you're obviously, for the listeners, Sai, you're in Auckland, New Zealand at the moment, lockdown. Auckland, New Zealand, Aotearoa, New Zealand, as we call it. Eventually, it'll just be called Aotearoa. But hey, we'll, get, we'll keep the New Zealand in there for now. We're coming out the end of the lockdown. It's been a good, good, fun virus time. We're lucky to have a, have a good situation here where they just got onto it. And we'll come out the other end of it and holy heck. What's your thoughts, side? I mean, looking from Australia to New Zealand, there's a lot of, I guess, speculation. Should Australia have locked down to kind of try and stop the curve? Should it just seems pretty hard to compare any two places, mm. you know, because all you've got to get is you just got to get one, like, dude with the virus who goes to a tool concert or something. It just seems like you can compare things and be like, well, and it's just like, it's a virus. If you have a bad situation, suddenly some, one person can spread it to 10,000 people and you've got a New York going on. Or you could just miss the, you dodge a bullet. Nah, I mean, ultimately, I think we'll get to the other end of this thing and people, it's the recovery that's going to be the big thing. And 
countries will start to do the recovery thing well and that'll be the everyone will forget about the lockdown and just be like cool you've done six months of recovering you did the right stuff but no it seems like both of our countries are on track to kind of have a similar vibe and open up to each other and which would be a, be a big thing. I think it's like heaps of the stuff we've been talking heaps about the effect of this is not so much about how this part of it went down, but it's kind of like, you know, how you run your business and how you adjust your thinking is really all about what's going on in like two months, you know, think two months down the line, two months into recovery. And there's been so much noise around this, like online in the last six to eight weeks. And it's such a noisy environment about it right now. But I think when the novelty wears off and the excitement wears off that, you know, if you can call it excitement, but you know what I mean? Yeah, it'll be like, it'll just be the, the nitty gritty of like, have you sort of done the hard work to move something on and make sure your business is going to survive? It feels like that starts in about two months time, you know, when it starts to get to become a bit of a hard grind. Is majority of your work around New Zealand? I know you've traveled around the world, but like, I don't know, I was speaking to a friend of mine and destination weddings seem like they're going to be the first kind of maybe thing that people will kind of contemplate or think twice about. Like, yeah, in two months, how are you guys like going to handle it, you know, with your work and stuff? We would usually do quite a heavy early summer and late summer, uh, pretty heavy periods for us. Like mostly autumn because we, we just love shooting autumn light. So we tend to book pretty heavy in the autumn just because we love it. So, you know, we'll tend to not, not trying to do double ups and not go too crazy in the rest of the summer. But when we get to the light we love, we're like, yeah. So we were just coming up to a really busy period. And so that kind of, we got quite a bit of that into that kind of can. But then our, our European and US stuff, all of our Northern Hemisphere stuff was obviously just, then we had a few conferences and things in Europe and cool stuff going on. So that's all sort of postponed pretty much for another year. So that sort of affected us pretty heavily. And then a lot of our couples, even for next summer, I think it's just still in the uncertain phase without all just being like, ah, oh, we're not sure if we're going to go here. Like lots of venues are being a bit weird, like lots of destination stuff is like a bit weird. I think generally like people will kind of get back to normal pretty quickly once there's some certainty. But that all depends on stuff like, man, if the US just continues to be a crazy shit show, then that could affect all of us for a long time. But we could get back to normal in, in between Australia and New Zealand. I think the big thing is people might forget this stuff, you know, and they might forget, oh, there was, there was a virus, there was whatever, pretty quickly. But they won't forget the feeling of it, you know. I think your actual memory of things fades, but you have this uneasy feeling that, oh, remember that time that the government told us we had to stay inside? and. Remember that time when we had to queue up for the supermarket and remember that time when we felt like everyone was dirty and remember that time where I felt the buzzer. So those are kind of like heart emotional memories that were uh, pretty, not traumatic, but wherever a step down from traumatic is. And so I think people won't forget that stuff too soon. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how groups of people respond to those feelings, you know. Interesting times. I mean, I think if you're in the people in love game, there's two things that have always endured, like people in love and wars. These things just keep going. So, yeah, people in love will find a way to do the stuff that they want to do. It's interesting. I think we're always used to, in business and in culture, like this incremental change that always just kind of, it's always going on. You know, people are always having to change by bit and adjust their sales and figure stuff out. And this is one of those things where there's probably a lot of changes that people are, are going to make to how they think and feel and do things that they probably would have made anyway over time. But we've just accelerated it until there was one big hunk of like, and stay home now, which means that everyone was sort of, suddenly has made this big change. So it feels like a big pivot, in inverted commas, 
for a lot of people with, with business things and how they think about how they do business. But it's probably just two or three years worth of thinking accelerated into one fast month. Like the stuff around sustainability and travel and destination wedding stuff and travel stuff. Is it even sustainable and what even is it? And all that sort of stuff. Suddenly it's just kind of, you've been forced into the situation where you just can't do it. And people are going like, what was that anyway? Like, why were we traveling so much? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? I think it's, it's one of those things of like, the shutdown part of this is going to fade into insignificance and the recovery part of how you run your business through recovery and how you kind of pick. I think the important thing is always like picking, you know, you and I are always talking about like audience and you, you, your own audience and the people that you need to turn on to your, to your stuff. And I think it's, it's if you can pick what your particular audience of people, who your crew are, how they respond, that's all that matters. And if they respond like in a way that's very risk averse and they really feel the emotion of it, then you're going to have to change what you're doing dramatically. If your people are like, who cares? We just want to cut loose. Then you, might, you probably won't have to change anything. But I, yeah, I think it's thinking about how your audience responds to it is always going to be the big thing. Mm, that's super interesting. Yeah, it's like obviously with destinations and stuff like that with weddings, it's, it seems like a lot of like destination photographers kind of like floating on this high and then it's just like boom and then just like everyone just like baseline, just like boom, you're getting off that plane and you, you're stopping your Instagram feed with all this like crazy like high rolling living or whatever you're putting up there. And like you said, everyone's just kind of like boom, now start like thinking about forward movement rather than, you know, this influx of inquiries for crazy destinations and stuff but it's real interesting to see so like can you give the listener like side can you give them obviously i know like a bit about bailey and more and stuff like that and all this incredible stuff that you do like i want to keep going on that introduction i said because man like i have to say that you've had the biggest impact in my photography journey and i don't want to turn this on me but like i'm sure you hear this from a lot of people you are like an incredible human you were so open and willing to share like your knowledge. Like when we talk and stuff, you're always willing to give and give and give. And there's no like taking or anything or, you know, sign up to this. It's just like so organic. You're way too kind. I mean, I think Soph and I started, we started bailing more like about, about 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago. And when we started, it was kind of like, there was a whole new move around how people were doing weddings. And, you know, if you're talking sort of, 2009, 2010, 2011, around that, that sort of period, like things really changed. And I think we, we always identified it as being like, it was kind of like the first big push of sort of social media stuff where people were really sharing like with the world, Hey, here's how we did our wedding. And in a lot of ways that kind of contributed to the amount of ideas that were out there in the ether. So people would see other couples doing things in a different way and be like, yeah, we could do that too, you know? We can do a cool superstar thing where a wedding doesn't have to be this really traditional whatever. And everything that went with that. So some of that is obviously like people get a bit competitive about, hey, I had a cool thing than my friends or whatever. There's, that's always, that's a human nature thing. But then also the kind of work that people were making, it came across in a very different way. And, and suddenly in the wedding industry, a bunch of people entered it who'd sort of come from other creative backgrounds. Like Jonas Peterson, like came from an advertising background or um, people coming from other fine art photo backgrounds and stuff. So there was a very different way of documenting. There, there were very different, the actual weddings themselves had this massive shift in how they were people were approaching them and the way they were being 
documented and recorded. It had this, so together those things made for this, and social media suddenly disseminated both of these things far and wide. And it's hard to imagine like now being in a period where like, you know, people didn't share stuff online, but there was a period, the early 2000s, you know. <laughs> and so we kind of came along just at that, just at that kind of like level. And we're making like little stop motion films as well as shooting stills. And there was sort of no one else in the world doing that. And there weren't, there weren't a lot of people in the world kind of doing stuff at all. And so we were lucky that that opened the door for us to have, you know, like, and that was the era too of when blogs were actually a thing, like with massive, like, readerships, like huge amounts of viewing numbers. And that's just, so you, you, you get a little stop motion film and some stills on like a big international blog. And the next day you, there'd be like, sort of 50 to 100 inquiries in your inbox from all over the world. So it was a weird time. We were just too dumb to say no to anything, so we just said yes to everything. And I think our vibe has always been just to try to make things easy. You know, you can kind of empathize with what it feels like to be a couple. So we were always just like, hey, yeah, we can figure this out, you know. And because of that, we found ourselves all over the world with all sorts of, meeting all sorts of like cool people and interesting photographers and other interesting, really interesting creative couples. And one of the things that always struck us about all these people who felt like they were our people is that they were all really generous and open with their knowledge and with their time and just with just being cool, you know. And we had noticed when we sort of started into the wedding industry that it was all old school people who were not that. Like they weren't very helpful and they weren't, um, they were just threatened and wanted to sort of protect their turf, which I, I can understand. And so we were just like, okay, we're going to try and always be really generous and open. And we met a couple of great friends, Ryan Heidi um, Brown from Fortune in North New York, probably on one of our first trips to New York years ago. And we just like called them up and we're like, hey, you guys want to hang out? And no one in that scene did that at that time. They were all super competitive. And they were like, oh, I mean, I guess. And then it, that just kind of started a thing where like we stayed with them and then they'd come here and stay with us. And then we'd slowly have more and more people who were traveling doing destination stuff, come and stay with us. And it kind of just turned into this vibe of, of opening up your home and your life and your conversations and your photo books and all that sort of stuff to just a bunch of people who were all doing the same thing. And you have experienced all this wonderful community of people, you know, and, and this, this kind of really cool community vibe that we have now, it wasn't always like that, you know, but now it is this really kind of wonderful thing. Some of our dearest friends, we would maintain friendship. You know, it's like, like you and I, like maintain friendships over like over Instagram messenger and over text and all this sort of stuff. You know, I have like the longest string in the world <laughs> with Ollie Sanson of just, it's not even English. I don't even know what it is. It's just like, mate. Like, just, like, you know, and it's all of these things. But also, it, it often turns into stuff where just like, holy shit, I need to solve this problem. Like, can you, like, I'm screwed. Like, help me with this. Or I've got this file thing. Or, you know, you have a day where you're just like, I just can't make anything work here. Like, or blah, blah, blah. You have the solidarity with someone else that because you've shared a big hunk of life and you've been open and generous with them, and they're open and generous with you. We have often talked, you and I, about this thing about hierarchy and destroying the hierarchy in, in art and in business and all this sort of stuff. And that we should all sort of maybe be a lot more, feel a lot more equal than we are. And, and hierarchy often comes from, from someone having more experience, but also then feeling like they have to protect that experience, that they're higher on a pyramid, which is just bullshit. I mean, ultimately, I think if, if you feel like you can ask someone to help you, and they feel like they can help you, you're going to get a great thing going on. 
you're going to solve more problems. It's, it's like, you know, the old a rising tide lifts all ships kind of thing. And I'd much rather be lifted by a bunch of people's knowledge than be protecting your patch on some bizarre hierarchy. I don't even know how to get into this. But yeah, that's, I think that's the upshot of that has been, you know, so I've had sort of 10 or 11 years of, of just like, this really wonderful community and of like learning how to do stuff, hopefully getting better, hopefully staying in the game and sharing what we've learned. But like, honestly, we have probably taken 99% of what we know from the community and shared 1% back into it. It's just, there's been so many incredible problem solving, cool things, you know, that have sort of come about. But it's also the, the experience of just trying to, you know, the vibe when you're just trying to like figure something out, like whether it's an old film camera, whether this, it's just a thing that you just, don't know what you discover and you can't figure out how to do or it might be like a piece of gear it might be a technique it might be like you have a business hassle or you're like shit like like that feeling of solidarity that someone else has gone through that just before you and can help you i think that's a really amazing thing and that you can actually get ahead if you just kind of like cast around in the community to be like hey can someone help me with this and one of the reasons of i think of always keeping your ego and pretty solid check is that if you've sort of built up this myth in your head that you're you're the shit or that you have got it all down, the chances of you shouting out to your community, hey, guys, can someone help me with this because I've just got no idea what the fuck I'm doing, you're not going to do that because it's like you're going to lose the So I think it's just the game of like always keeping it real with your crew that you can keep lifting each other. Do you feel as though like because you do share so much and I know, you know you're running multiple businesses and that, do you honestly feel like tight for time though at times? Like, I mean, I don't know any other photographer. I can speak to anyone I, I know and they know of you or they know someone of that's connected with you on, on some kind of level. So do you feel though that you do get kind of caught up with time or do you kind of schedule it or you just kind of roll with it? Because I know you're pretty chill. I mean, we tend to just roll with it. I think like... Brian Morrow, a good friend of ours in LA who runs Shark Pick, he has like a little recipe about where he, how he divides up his time with three hours, which is like your time's like sort of generally divided into three. Revenue, real, and relationship. And real is just filmmaker talk for like, you know, like portfolio. So like you've either got to be making money, you've got to be doing something that pushes you ahead like creatively or that you can use to grow your, your brand or whatever you want. And then you're building relationships with your crew. And that's kind of where, and I think it's a really great way of just segmenting your time to go, okay, what is this thing that I'm doing fall into? Does it fall into we're making money, we're like pushing the art forward, or I'm just building a relationship? And then it gives you an easy way to just kind of assess how much time you're putting into stuff to make sure that you don't get out of whack and suddenly you're just cranking around the world building relationships and you haven't made any money in your script. And so now I, I just always make sure that that's that. I, and I would much rather sort of go deep with a bunch of people, like our friendship, like another probably sort of 20 people that like we've gone pretty deep with, where you just sort of go, oh yeah, these are, these are our people. Like, you know, we, we speak the same language and we know that like when we sit down for a yarn, it's not going to be a constant misunderstanding and whatever. It's just like, yeah, we, we can get something done. I think that's, that's kind of like how it goes. But I, I think you always sort of have to figure out where you're putting your time and how it's being productive. And I mean, some of that is being is making sure that things are measurable. And by measurable, it's not necessarily like an accounting term, but just going, okay, you're doing stuff that like that works. You know, you're doing stuff with people who are like-minded and who care about the same things and who are, I mean, for us, it's always really important that we're doing things with people who are being generous and helpful and, and trying to grow the thing as well. 
that's always like a pretty vital thing. Those three hours of like Brian's things are, is a really good way to kind of manage your time. You know, it's like everything that you that you face that comes into your inbox or is it revenue? Is it for your real or is it for building a relationship? And if it doesn't fall into any of those, I don't know what that would be. That, would, that might be nuclear war. Who knows? <laughs> but you know, like you can sort of go, okay, and you can just manage from week to week and month to month and year to year how much time you're putting into each one of those things. Because they, they all, if you, when you get it in balance, it, it all works out to grow your business, it all works out to grow your, your art, and it all works out to grow the, the fact that you end up with a community of people at the end of this thing that you go, ah, these people know me. I love these people. And we've been in this journey together, you know, that's kind of, you know, I mean, God, I'm going to be an old crusty dude soon. And I want to, I want to look around and have a bunch of friends. So you're just like, sure. Remember that time when we did this? And like, you know, remember that time when we got, got held up in life by some Somali guys in Nairobi, you know? So it's that sort of, stuff. or like, you know, like you and I, like remember that time when we were in that crazy old, like half falling down lodge on the side of a, volcano and a snowstorm and we had to evacuate like this this stuff this is the stuff that you talk about necessarily talk about like man remember that time we talked about the five top tips for like surviving the pandemic it's the actual real experiences that kind of make you into someone who who can give something back i think yeah i mean like i remember when i was first getting into film photography and i felt like yeah, like maybe my ego was in check a little bit. I'm like, I'm a bit lost. Like I'm sitting on YouTube trying to work this kind of thing out. And, you know, I asked you a question. I forget what it was this a couple of years ago. And the reply I got wasn't instant. I'm, you know, I was like super grateful that you even took time to reply. And I think it was like within a couple of hours, you sent me this list and all these books to kind of digest. And, and it was incredible. I was just like, that wasn't just a like, a, here's a YouTube link, like don't talk to me again, which is like, a big thing is, you know, like giving that time and effort. Like if you do say and do it right, I mean, I can ask you any question and, and vice versa, but you are so, so open. Like you haven't, I'd love to talk about how you built your fans because I know so many photographers that are your fans, you know, like so many photographers would bite at the chance of digging deeper with you and like this podcast and all that. But do you feel as though it's because you, you give a lot of focused attention, especially at that workshop that I attended. Yeah, like you said, it wasn't, here's five tips how to take better photographs. And it's like, mate, I can YouTube that. And that's so superficial. Like, what about answering my question? Like, okay, cool, five five tips how to take better photos, but I'm not taking better photos. I've listened to these five tips. It's not transferring to like my creative field. Yeah, do you find that like, you really like hone in and give undivided attention and like I remember when we caught up you didn't seem like you sat on social media like a lot of photographers do scrolling on the infinite scroll and stuff so yeah do you feel like you take that time out like for each person yeah I reckon like if you're hanging around people in love and the interesting thing about doing what we do is that you're you're, you're sort of a professional best friend you're a stranger professional best friend it's like a, it's a weird vibe and the biggest like your secret weapon is empathy like your secret weapon is being able to hang out with some people and really quickly understand where they're coming from and feel what they're feeling and feel either feel their frustration or be able to you know like, or you, to be re- to really be able to understand what's going on in the room is the number one secret weapon of being a of being a photographer who at least is a documentary photographer you know doing what we do and so I think you can take those skills into normal, everyday anything and just kind of when you hear someone say something or ask them, you can just be like, whether you've expressed it well or not, like, I, I know what you're saying. Like, I feel, I've felt that. I understand what you're feeling. And if you actually feel that, 
when you were asking me, you know, about like medium format stuff and Rolly stuff and everything with the film thing, and I'm just like, shit, I, I remember feeling like that, just going like, what the hell is any of this stuff? How does it, what, who, how do I navigate my way? Like, this, it feels like I could put my foot wrong. It feels like the internet's telling me 3,000 different things. Help. And straight away, you, like, my response to that is to go, holy shit, I know what that was like. Like, I can help you to not have to make the 300 wrong turns I took. This is like, this is going to be a piece of cake. Just do this. But it's, it's like one of those things of, we've got a bunch of friends who are great chefs, right? And if you ask a chef how to help, how to help you cook for the thing, the first thing really good chefs tell you straight away is like, it's a piece of cake. There's nothing to it. Like, it's absolutely nothing to it. And then they'll proceed to passionately tell you every incredibly fine detail about how there is, in fact, 10,000 things to it, even if it's just frying an egg, where you're just like, I thought there's nothing to it. Like, what the hell? But because of the way that they're, they're passionate, they're just like, oh, this, this is a piece of cake. You're like, cool, it's a piece of cake. We can do this. But then they just spill this info on you, which as this, as it's coming out, they're just like, actually, that is really important. And that is kind of, that's pretty important too. But like, you can ignore that. But this is, I think it's just the, like, when there's a sense of empathy for understanding the position someone's in, it's very, very easy to just be like, oh, I've been there. Like, I can, I, I totally get what you're, I don't even know if that answers your question, but I think that's such a vital thing. Like, it's people ask about how to improve their business or how to improve their photos or how to be in the right place at the right time or how to get access to the room, how to let people be, to let you be there when incredible things are happening, you know, in a tiny room. Like, the answer is always empathy. Just practice empathy. Be the person that people want around. We are like, they might be kicking everyone else out of the room, but like, they don't. They don't even mention you leaving because for some reason it feels better with you being there, but you understand and all sorts of stuff. And it, it works in life. It works in just being a great human. It works in, in how you build your business. It works in how you take better photos. It works across the board. Empathy is, is the key. And I think it's not, it's very easy to hear empathy and think that means being a, you know, being a doormat or, or having all the feels. And all that. No, it just means understanding what the other person understanding what, what they're feeling. You don't need to stand in, you have to feel it, but it just means you go, okay, I know what's going on here. Like I know, and often, back to your thing, when people are asking about learning things, that means you identify straight away to go, ah, I, I remember what it felt like to be trying to nail this, you know? And it's like, you know, while your journey is not my journey, or the experience, the, the stages are the same, you know, the frustration of wanting to, be able to figure out how to do this thing or that thing or chasing this thing down, you know, or being frustrated with your work or being like feeling like you're always shooting people who maybe aren't a great match for you or like wanting to like push back. The, we get a lot of people who always have this feeling they like they feel like they want to kick down a door to open up the world of making art, but they just don't know what door to kick down. It's just like, I'm ready to fucking go. I just don't know where to go. You know, I'm just like, I know that I've got something great in me. I know that I can do something really good. I don't even know what that is yet. I don't know anything past that, but I'm, ah, you know. It's like a kid who hasn't got his driver's license yet, and they're just like sitting in the car. They figure <laughs> they have to turn it on, and they're just like revving the gas, being like, I know that this thing can go, and I can figure out what gears are. Yeah, talking about that kicking down doors and creating art, I think it's a, a constant struggle with a lot of creators, right? Like me, even myself. 
I know you've spoken about it before on multiple podcasts and and to me personally, but about creative diet. But I also want to talk about an implementable task of like, yeah, kicking down that door because for the listener out there, for me, size giving me this this module, I guess you want to call it, which I'm sure you'll go into, which is this kind of creative diet. Won't go into it yet, but. I want to talk about those kicking down doors, Sai, because with that creative diet, I've come up with my plan and I've obviously taken a lot of these kind of tools with me and and started implementing them in my life. And there are times when I'm just feeling like, wow, like there is that thief of comparison is a thief of joy and all that. But sometimes I'm just like, I'm getting nothing from this. Like, And then I I go back to, I remember you telling me, you've got to find your creative diet. Like there's no point in being a sigh more there. I might give you tools to help you get there, but who's Ryan? Like be Ryan, but yeah, obviously sharing your knowledge obviously helps. But can you tell the listeners, I don't know if you come up with this analogy, you're the first person that's ever told me about it. And it didn't transform my photography business. I transformed my life. Like, I could sit on this podcast and I know we can see each other. I could be in tears so easy right now. Just thinking about like the beauty and you know, like you you go on about what you inhale is what you exhale. And I would love you to kind of just cap on that for the listener that so they understand what we're talking about and then we can dive deep into maybe ways they can use it to make their own creative diet. Yeah, totally. I mean, I like everything that so far I always talk about, like, We've stolen it from everyone else. You know, like we're just a big, a big sponge of stealing. And it's just like the product of being able to, you know, have so many wonderful people on our couch having the yarn, you know, like late at night or early in the morning or over whatever this time. Like, but it's it's just all of that combined wonderful knowledge that you kind of allowed to steal from other people. But I think the creative diet thing is is a, is a really massive one. Like, it's basically like you are what you eat. You know, you are whatever you whatever you put in is what you're going to get out. And that's on, on so many levels. I mean, on a nutrition level, yes. It's, it's like if you keep eating Snickers, eventually it's going to show up on your hips. Won't straight away. Like if you ate a Snickers, right, boom, in the mouth, and it was like on the hip, <laughs> you would stop eating Snickers. It's pretty obvious. problem is that it just eventually shows up. And it, that thing applies so much to like your, to your, to your creative diet. And Often negatively, I think it's really, really easy to be like putting certain things into you, like visually, and then you're getting a certain result out and you, you get really frustrated. And if you honestly really believe that sort of, you know, the stuff that you're looking at is going to become the stuff that you produce, you would change the stuff that you're looking at. If you're just on the eternal scroll on Instagram, I mean, and it's so, it's so much good stuff. Like the production values are amazing. There's all this incredible stuff, but it's just, it's like having someone. Like if like you're sitting down at the table and someone's just constantly bringing you dish after dish and force feeding you to eat it of everything from like fried chicken to like hot chips to a plate of dirt to raw worms to sushi to sashimi to like porridge to haggis to and it's just like well, uh, you know the nutritional result that that's getting for you is it all might in fact each thing might be incredible but the sum result is that you're just like gorging yourself on horrific stuff that does nothing for you but yeah like the creative diet vibes is just like you whatever you're looking at and whatever you're consuming is what you're going to end up putting out there's like this great stevie wonder idea this quote of breathe in and breathe out if you want to make great music which is like whatever you breathe out if you breathe in pure oxygen or if you breathe in 
pure mountain air somewhere, that's the fuel. And what you breathe out is the exhaust. <laughs> it's, just, it's that stuff, but you've taken all the good stuff out of it and you're just breathing out the bad stuff. And so the natural result is that like whatever you put into yourself, you're kind of going to dilute it and just make it a bit shit. Just the reality of it. So you want to be putting stuff that's really potent into you so that you get something good out. And I was years kind of making records and, and the music game. Was, and I tell, always tell a story of there's a producer, Welsh producer guy, Greg Haver, so great, like great accent, kind of try and do it like, all right, yeah, <laughs> just like, yeah, kind of like a pirate, like a cross between a pirate and a farmer. <laughs> but yeah, like I'd see him like doing stuff with like young artists kind of like coming through, you know, and great people, scientists, only in universal, people doing great stuff. And he'd always be like, what are you listening to? You know, like what, what's the record that you're listening to that you want your record, this thing that we're making to sound like? And they'd say something. And he'd be like, you know, like Coldplay, I don't know. <laughs> and he'd eye roll from Haver and he'd be like, oh, no, go away and have a listen to, do a little bit of research and find out what, whatever record it is that you want this record you're making to sound like. Find out what those guys were listening to when they made that record, like what they were feeding themselves. Even that concept alone is amazing. So it's like, shit, good point. Like, what, like if you love Radiohead's OK Computer, for example, or like if you love like that Billie Eilish record, like what was she listening to when she made that record that made her make that? That's what you should be listening to. And so, you know, this, like you get this, an artist come back and they'd be like, oh, I found these three records that like Coldplay was listening to when they made Yellow or something terrible like that. And it's just like, oh, okay, maybe go away and find out what these people were listening to when they made those records, you know, like let's just take this shit back even further. And eventually you get back to like really potent, amazing stuff like Helen Wolf and Miles Davis and anything from John Lennon and whatever. And you're just like, okay, we can work with this. This is some pretty amazing building blocks. But it's, it's really, really potent stuff. And I think it's the same thing of like, if you're looking for inspiration, visual inspiration, like have a look at the people that inspire you and find out who their building blocks were, you know, go back a step, go back another step beyond that, go back another step beyond that. Because you'll find that a lot of the rules that we're, inverted commas that we're working with, a lot of the inspiration and the methods and, and the way you see light and all this kind of stuff, you can get right. Why be inspired by someone who's, who's kind of copying it from someone else. Just go straight to the source. Go straight to the most potent person. Go straight to the most potent artist. You know, it's like I was obsessed with directional light. I still am. And when you roll it back, you know, you, you sort of get back to like the Farm Security Administration guys like 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 Walker Evans and using this really strong directional light in old crazy shacks in Oklahoma during the Great Depression, you know, where there's no electricity and the light just bangs in through one tiny window in a horrible shack and hit someone and you know they're shooting that but then you you have like oh where did he get that from so you dial it back about about however many layers in him and you find out that he gets it from like Caravaggio and like the Dutch masters and like these crazy painting guys who saw light in a certain way so why not feed yourself that feed yourself Caravaggio instead of feeding yourself whatever and I think it's I mean, that's the most simplified way of just being like, you really are what you eat. If you can put more and more potent stuff into you, you're going to get more and more potent stuff out. And so many people are really frustrated with their output or just confused by their output or just being like, ah, oh, why don't I, you know, whatever. And they don't consider what they're putting into the machine about limiting their diet or limiting what they're looking at or being really active with their inspiration, being really active with what they're feeding themselves to ensure that they're going to get a certain thing. 
it's a really wild and very easy and fast way to transform what you're doing. Because like, so one of some of the key things are not just like visual stuff or photos or whatever that you're looking at. You can dial back to some incredible legacy people, you know, like we was talking about Stephen Shaw, you know, and Fred Herzog and these guys who are kind of the building blocks of, of the photography world who are from that era, you know, the fifties and the sixties when it was really, it was, this is like, the, they're like the Hendrix and the, the cream and the Beatles of, of visual stuff. You know, that was the time when it's like someone figured out how to electrify a guitar and they're just like, holy shit, like you can make a massive sound. You know, that's what these guys were doing at a photography level and that era. And that's why people reference them all the time. But it's, it's not just that, but it's like, it's like films. It's like, we're always, you know, you and I was talking about cinema stuff and filmmakers and DPs and because the way that they're dealing with light and dealing with narrative and dealing with stories very similar to what we do, but they're doing it in this way, you know, with a crew of 200 and a budget of 20 million. And so it's just, it's like if people are getting that result with that level of focus and that level of, of specialty and expertise, we should be take, paying attention to what they're doing, you know, looking at how they use light and how they craft light. And they're, they're creating something out of nothing at a level which is just staggering if, if you're, you know, an available light documentary photographer like we are, you're just like, shit, what if you have a look at the most beautiful thing that you've shot of, of a bunch of people on the wedding day um, when the light was perfect and the moment was perfect and all that sort of stuff. And then you think about filmmakers and you're just like, they do that, except they made it out of nothing. Like they created it out of nothing. Like, holy crap, that's wild. Like they actually made it up. That stuff's amazing. Like, but then also you, I, I think on the diet front, and this is where it's been a game changer for, for us, is that like the biggest part of your creative diet is not just the visual stuff you're feeding yourself, but it's the people that you're putting yourself around. It's what you're, what you're injecting into yourself, the conversations that you're having, and the late night rants and the help that you can call on, all that sort of stuff. And sometimes, you know, you just need to have a, a really solid look about what you're feeding yourself in terms of, of conversations. And have you got someone that you can go and watch a, a classic Roger Deakins film with? and tear it apart over late night beers somewhere and then go and watch it the next day and whatever. Have you got someone that you can have, that you can disagree with about art and it doesn't affect your, you know, you can thrash things out. And I, I think having having a really great diet of, of good creative stuff, good visual stuff, you know, of good music, of really good people, of good friends around you, is going to transform who you are and what you're making. If you don't like your output, check your input. So do you think, so? Si, like, I mean, I hopefully the listener picks up on that, what Sai's talking about, but paying attention rather than just using it as like a, a I mean, a recreational kind of input, I guess. Like, you know, you can go out and purchase a photo book and you can flip through it, but not take much notice and not, not take much in either. So for the listener out there and they're like kind of intrigued by this idea, because it may be the first time they've heard it. Do you think like paying attention and really like, you know, I remember the first time this got kind of spoken to me about from yourself and I remember being on the plane coming back from New Zealand and I was watching The Tree of Life and I remember just like pausing it and just like looking at the light. I've never done that when I've watched a movie before, right? I never realized why I was in love with that scene or that light or that palette or the how everything kind of come together and I took a photo on my phone and I put it as my screensaver on my phone and finished watching the movie. And I remember waking up the next day and looking at it and I thought, I want to make work like that. That, like, why did I stop the movie? And then I did watch it again. This is the first time I started paying attention. And I paused the movie and I took about, I think I took about 150 screenshots of all different scenes. 
and it wasn't that I wanted to make the same kind of photograph or kind of depict the same imagery, but I was inspired by it and the palette. And then, you know, I saved it as a personal project folder that if, you know, I did do any personal projects that, you know, I may look into this folder for inspiration, but paying attention, like, yeah, do you watch a movie? And today, do you still keep up your creative diet? Do you listen to vinyls? What do you do, man? Totally. Like, we're big, massive consumers of music, massive consumers of films, like, always, like, thrashing through stuff. But I think it, it is, like, like you say, like, paying attention is, is the vital thing. Like, you are, it's fine to be just a consumer who just lets stuff wash over them and you're just kind of, whatever the world feeds up to you, you're just, ah, you know. But if you're a professional maker, like we are, you're an athlete, right? You're the sports version of an athlete. You're the creative version of an athlete. And you need to take it really seriously. You need to like, it's like your average punter just eats for fun. They just eat shit for fun. They just put it in. If you're like an Olympic athlete coming up to the bloody Olympics and you want to be making, doing the best work of your life, like what you're putting into your body is very, very exceedingly carefully like measured because you know that what you put in will be what you get out. And that's the difference, I think. Sometimes we just think of ourselves, if you're like a, a professional maker, you think you consume like you're a punter, which is, is a huge amount of damage. Like, and as soon as you start paying attention, you really start to notice what's good fuel to be putting into you and what stuff you can just ignore. And, you know, like you're saying, you find a scene from a film or a whole film, you're just like, this is fuel for me. This is fuel for what I want to do with my life, like what I want to do with, with the next year or what I want to do. This scratches that itch of that creative thing that I've been trying to nail and I see there's a few solutions in this. Like I need to pay attention. I need to go deeper. I need to find out who made this and how they made it and why and, and all this sort of stuff and start paying attention. Whereas someone else might just be like, cool, entertainment, Sweet, on we go. It's kind of like going out for a meal with a chef. If they find something that really gets their attention, they're just like, they start to like rip it apart. And it may not be the greatest fun to go out for a meal with a chef who's tearing into a meal, but you'll, you'll sure as hell, you'll learn a hell of a lot. And so I think it's that, being willing to learn and being willing to crack into stuff. But it's all of that diet stuff is around you all the time. And I think keeping it fresh and constantly seeking out stuff is really important. And at the same time, figuring out, ah, that's something that I'm going to really go deep into and really figure out why it pushes my buttons and why it's kind of something that I need to look at. So in some ways, like it's, you just have to figure out what's the best medium for you to absorb inspiration through and then stick with that. And it's totally fine to be using all these other everything. Instagram's fine. Like the internet's fine or whatever, you know, some of that stuff is just, hey, it just is what it is. But if you were trying to like actively be inspired by a scrolling feed on Instagram that's dictated to you by an algorithm, how's that ever going to work? Like, if you're like, I want to make work that's a certain thing this, this year, say, or in two years' time, or three years' time, or this month, or next month, do some research. Find what that stuff looks like and feels like. Find some artists who who are already making work like that. There's such a fear in the creative world of ripping people off that you're going to like, I don't want to look like I'm ripping someone off and making work. It's like you would have to be so incredibly good to rip someone off. Like it's just not possible, you know, like just put it into the machine and see what comes out. Like if you find a thing that you go, I don't know why, but that turns me on. I love it. Investigate why. Why do I like it? What's, you know, if it's a cinema thing, well, how is the light? Like, what's the color palette? How did they make it? Is it shot on film? Is it digital? Is it whatever? Is it 35 mil? Is it 16 mil? Is it 65 mil? Is it who? What the hell is this? What is this color palette? You know, really examine why and then have a look. Just start to see if you can build a picture or run some threads tools, inspiration stuff. And you're going to start to like 
move on from that one thing to having a wider picture of what you want to make. It's so difficult to actually imitate something because, you know, like that Stevie Wonder thing, you breathe it in and you breathe out a much worse version. Just drop that fear right there and just start absorbing and examining and really looking at how things are made. And if you find someone who, you know, you might find a cinematographer or, an, or a photographer or an architect or a chef or someone who makes something that just makes you go, hell yeah, that's like, I don't know why, but that really gets me going. Just email them. There's nine times out of ten, they're just, you'll never hear anything back. But every now and then, someone will like get back in touch and be like, hey, great to hear from you. Like, here's what I did or here's why I did that or like, so weird that you like that because that was just all a big mistake or a total <laughs> cop-up or whatever. Reach out. Even if you don't get an answer, it's, it's worthwhile doing. It's worthwhile even trying to figure out what you would ask someone to put in an email, even if they never reply. Like, all of that stuff is stuff that like you learn from. But I think... All of those things are examples of really actively taking on your diet, of actively considering what you're putting into yourself. And every time you do that, you're going to just get a little bit more careful about what you're feeding yourself and how it works out and where you find your next hunk of stuff from. And you'll find yourself asking your friends, man, what are you listening to? Like, what are you looking at? Have you seen good thing? Like, have you seen this film? Like, holy shit, you know, like... Even at a visual level, at a color palette level, if you want to understand, I mean, this is that creative diet thing. I think often you know, when you're talking to people about, like, especially like wedding photographers, talking about struggling with their color palette and their processing, right? Have a think, like, why, why, when you're in, in Lightroom or Capture One, you use, why does the slider stop at a certain place? Like, why, when you're processing, you go, that feels right? Like, where did you get that from? Where did you get calibrated? Like, because you got calibrated either accidentally or on purpose. And most of most of the time it's probably accidentally. From what you watch on TV, you know, from the films that you saw, from the the magazines that you read and what the colour palette was. And so you might as well calibrate yourself deliberately so that that slider starts to stop in a place that makes you feel real good rather than just being like, that that feels like it's right, but it doesn't feel right. You know, just like like calibrate the machine so that you're getting the result that you want to get. So, Sai, if someone's inspired by your work, let's say, so you're saying going back to the sources. So, if I can like ask you, where would you direct a listener? If they're looking at your website and they're like, wow, you know, this this is incredible. Like, I really want to make work like this. You're saying, obviously, well, don't look at the person that's outputting it now. Like, figure out where I got it from. So, where would you direct a listener for yourself and your work that you're, you know, so and you are creating? I mean, like, at a color level, like we shoot a lot of film, 35 mil in medium format. And like we started to shoot a lot of film because like we were always really frustrated with like around 2011, 12, I mean, there's some crazy color fads that happen in the photography world, especially in the wedding photography world, because you know, you're often trying to like solve problems as opposed to impose a look on something. You're just like, you're dealing with crazy different shitty light all day or whatever, and you're just trying to make it look like something. And we were really frustrated with all these ridiculous color fades. And so I just, I just started to shoot like a roll of portrait 400 at each wedding on 35 mil through the same lenses. So that you sort of tried to find a color North to go, that's what it should look like. Because like a lot of the calibration, a lot of the stuff, the way that we're calibrated to see color and tone is from film. Like the last half of the 20th century is like this remarkable feast of imagery and magazines and on screen and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, shit, that stuff looks like how I want our work to look. And anyone who's making work now is referencing 
that or they're referencing someone who's referencing that, you know, so it's, it has this massive effect, like the boon in colour photography around Kodachrome and some of those, like, emulsions, ectochrome, and, like, it has a certain look. And it's, it's like real life, but it's just a little bit better, like a little bit more contrasting, a little bit richer. And so, yeah, we, we started to shoot Portrait 400 at every wedding to just go, we just want to make sure that we never fall into the vibe of having fat. We want people to look at our work in 10 years and just go, hell yeah, like, I'm so glad I got this guy to shoot my wedding. It looks, that looks amazing. And I don't know if we're there yet. Like, it's, we still have a long way to go in that journey. But, you know, like, it's... So, yeah, we started shooting the film. And then I started to pay attention to people like Fred Herzog, um, Modern Colour is a classic, Stephen Shaw's Uncommon Places. And I remember the first time I picked up Stephen Shaw's Uncommon Places, which is a book. He's a photographer. When he was young, he was hanging around Andy Warhol's factory in New York, in Union Square, and saw all this crazy art like celebrities, like the birth of that whole scene, like crazy weird people and rock and roll dudes and crazy drag queens and like artists and everyone together in this one space. And he's just like this young guy who's like sort of photographing it. And I didn't quite kind of get uncommon places at the start. I was just like, what? But then when you, you pay attention, you start to look at the stuff, you're just like, ah, I feel like I've seen this all before. And the reason why is because so he's inspired so many people that like you're back looking at the original document and it's like it's like hearing like when you've heard someone like tell like an urban legend over and over and over from like so many people and then one day you meet the person that it was actually about and just like holy shit this is the person this is the urban legend yeah same thing with like William Eagleston I you know paying attention to like films um, like cinematographers like like Roger Deakins you know who did all the Coen Brothers stuff and. Bob Richardson, Robert Richardson, who's like the, the DP behind all the, all the Tarantino stuff. I love both of their styles and their composition and, and the way that stuff works. Or Chivo, famous for like shooting everything on the big freaking 24 handheld and super wide. And this stuff is, if you pay attention to just go, oh, I like those three films. Like they all kind of felt the same to me. I wonder who made them, different directors. Ah, it's the same cinematographer. It's the same guy doing the lighting the same guy shooting and doing the lighting, that's why they look the same. The colour palette has this certain kind of vibe to it. Like, I wonder why. And then you just, you know, you just hunt down, you read a few interviews and suddenly you're just like, these guys are all referencing people like like photographers like William Eagleston. And you look at William Eagleston's work, you know, photographer from the South in the US. And and you're like, oh, I see, I see it. I see the thing. Like, And suddenly you find yourself that you've like left these guys behind and you've gone back to this this early and you're just feeding yourself the same and there's something intoxicating about going oh i'm feeding myself the same stuff roger deacon was like feeding himself to make these films i mean we're, we're on the same diet basically surely i'm giving myself a leg <laughs> i should i should be able to, but no i haven't as yet i haven't like made it made an amazing Coen brothers film so <laughs> no but yeah it's like so, so there's, there's some of that stuff and i think i would say you know you look at some of those really great cinematographers and the thing is that it's not I think if you've never really had a solid look at creative diet before, it's like music. I aren't really into music. And someone's like, cool, just get out there and get into it. And you're like, but there's so much of it. Like, what? how do I navigate it? And the, the thing is that there actually isn't. Like, once you're sort of up to date, if you just read, I don't know, what's a blog, a good music blog, Pitchfork. You read Best New Music on Pitchfork. That would be an industry standard Bible of new music. They're, they're reviewing like an album a week a new album a week. You can keep up with that. Don't bother trying to like backfill all the stuff you don't know about. Just start now. 
Start with the freshest stuff now and have a look at it and, and find something that you like and then look up some interviews and find what they're into and what they were listening to and just do the process yourself. And it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to, every year, like at a, at a visual level, say, Sophie and I will go, we'll watch all the films that are nominated for Academy Awards. Not because the Academy Awards are anything, but just because it's, it's, it's a good aggregator to go, okay, these are award-winning films and the people who are making them are the absolute top of their craft and there's, there's got to be some good in all of these things. And, you, you know, you might watch a dozen films and there might be four or five of them that are just kick-ass, amazing, that you go back and you watch again. And there's nothing like watching a film twice to make you go, holy shit, I'm seeing all the things. that Because you don't, the story, the narrative doesn't surprise you anymore. You're not there being like, oh, what's the twist? You're just looking at how it looks and how it's constructed. And it's remarkable. I mean, I remember going, you know, like, have you seen Isle of Dogs, Wes Anderson? Yeah, I think so, yeah. It's like the stop motion thing about, you know, Japanese thing about the dogs, right? And um, the first time it was just like a visual feast of like, holy shit. And then the second time you're just like, okay, I know how this goes. Like, and you start to see so many things about how this was made. And then suddenly you find yourself going down the rabbit hole of watching behind the scenes things about camera moves on stop motion stuff and how they've done the color palette and how they've lit this. And I think I find that stuff amazing because they've, they've created it out of nothing. You know? But that's the thing. Like once you just start, like you were saying before, if you start paying attention, you will find fuel all around you. And you'll start to see that it's actually not an overwhelming avalanche of fuel, but there's always just, there's always sort of a handful of world-class people who are kind of got a finger in a bunch of Pisces who influence things, you know, it's just like, if you're trying to like do your own creative diet, just like, honestly, just Google like great legacy photographers and pick the first three that come up. Great cinematographers, pick the first three that comes up, go down the rabbit hole because the people who are really great are not hiding you'll find their influence. You'll find them if you just bother to go down the rabbit hole for a second and pay attention. If you see something that you like, just stop and be like, who made this? And figure it out. Go from there and investigate. It's like my journey doesn't have to be your journey. Like Ryan's journey doesn't have to be your journey. It's just, it's just like, but you can use the same methods to investigate stuff to really get yourself going and get yourself down the track. And it's kind of wonderful when you, you have, you're talking about the stuff to someone and you'll start to realize that you've, you've discovered the same people, but through very different paths. And it's just like, holy shit. Like, and because of those different paths, you know, you, you kind of have a different appreciation or you've got different things out of it. It's a pretty wild, it's a pretty wild thing. We've got a big photo book collection and I do, I, I love it when we have, when we can share those books with people and people, it's, they, they find themselves like flicking through stuff and are like, there's something familiar about this or I, I get this thing or I've seen this before or I, I feel like I know this work. And eventually what it is is that they have someone they follow or someone that they know makes work that's inspired by one of these people and, and the flavor is in it and the flavor is really strong. So I said, Sai, at the start, bro, I said, obviously your work has this timeless feel and I don't want to veer away too much from the creative diet, but you said initially that film kind of was a major contributor to how you calibrated your work and since I've known your work, I haven't seen it follow trends or anything like that. And it's truly work that, you know, if the listeners are looking at, they're going to go on and, you know, in 10, 20 years, it's not this crazy slider and it's desaturated and there's this bright pink flower, who knows what's happening. So if we can give like the listener 
implementable way they could do that. So if they haven't shot film before, if they shoot some film, did you kind of like bring, say, a frame up from your 35 mil camera and then bring a digital up and then try and match or not go too far left or too far right from the north type thing when you were trying to calibrate your work to film because film's been around for so long? Yeah, I think that calibration thing works. It's less about actually having the thing on screen and trying to match it. And it's more about you have to trust that whatever you put into you, you'll start to be like, this looks like this. So I, a lot of it, a lot of that calibration is, is about diet. It's even about like, you don't necessarily even need to shoot film to calibrate yourself to film. But if you start figuring out like why you like a certain color palette, you know, or how certain color palettes, why you, why you like certain color and tone things. And then just keep feeding yourself more of that, you know. And I think one of the problems of, say, trying to do that off a medium like, you know, without being Instagram, but off a medium like Instagram, it's, it's the one image, the one shot thing. You're getting all of these different colors and tones and just one single images all the time. And it's just not very helpful. But if you sit down with, like, we mentioned Fred Hurt's sort of Modern Color, a classic Canadian photographer from, like, what's the, the 60s, 60s series, who died recently. Hey, you look at his work and it's all shot on the same film stock and it's all shot in the same light and the same kind of, you know, the same place. And it has, you can go through that book and be like, ah, it looks the same. Like the color, the body of work looks the same. And so you can sit there and feed yourself just image after image of how this stuff works. And whether you are really active with it or not, your eye is calibrating itself to be like, I never realized that that's how I want red to look, but holy fuck, that's how I want red to look. Like it should look like that. Herzog's got it. And so a lot of that is just putting that into you. And the thing is that like if a lot of the stuff that I I love to look at, like um, Larry Burroughs, for example, Vietnam War photographer who shot heaps of stuff on ectochrome. And I was just like, why is this? It looks, this stuff looks insane. I wish I could get this color palette. And then one day I came across a bunch of rolls of ectochrome and I shot it. And so like I'm feeding myself this Larry Burroughs ectochrome-ish stuff and Leibovitz like her stuff on ectochrome as well you know like similar similar era similar kind of vibe I'm feeding myself that you know out of books and being like shit I love this you know and more and more becoming calibrated to that and then I start to shoot it as well and I see my work come back with the same look on film and I'm like oh I get it and then suddenly those two things together means that then when you shoot when you're trying to make your digital stuff look the same you've got this whole you know like the slider naturally stops in a certain place to be like I know the itch that I'm trying to scratch now. I think sometimes people's uh, frustration with trying to get their color style right is they don't even know what the itch is that they're trying to scratch. They're just like, they just know they don't like the one they've got. You know, they're just like, this isn't right. And they look at everything else wildly different all over the place and be like, I just like all of this differently, but I don't know how to get my own thing. But yeah, a lot of that is you can get out, you can shoot some rolls of film yourself, but you can also give yourself some input of some really fantastic people right now just by buying a photo book. And I only, I only talk about photo books all the time because it's, it's a really easy way to not have to look at a screen to get an inspiration. And screens are fine. Like the way a screen works is it's like shining a torch into your eyes. You know, it's pretty ruthless on the brain. And screens are often full of a lot of distractions. Like if it's your phone, there's a million apps going on. There's shit all around the outside of the thing. Someone's got an algorithm that controls it. If it's your laptop or your desktop, there's stuff there's stickies everywhere there's whatever there's folders there's pop-up ads and there's all sorts of shit the easiest way to just cut through that shit and turn it off is to just put a book in front of you sit there in the morning light with your coffee and just give yourself half an hour and 
flick through the same photo book every day. Just buy one. Throw down 50 bucks on a great book and spend half an hour with it every morning for six months. And I promise you that it will transform your work. And there's something about, about how light falls on a thing. The craft that we do is light, is starlight from the galaxy, from the sun, like coming, whatever it is, like, you know, 250,000, 350,000 kilometers through the atmosphere and landing on something, bouncing off it and into your camera into your eyes like that's what we do and it seems to make sense that if you want to inspire yourself you kind of use the same tool you put a book down on the table and the starlight comes through the galaxy through the window bounces on the book and into your eyes you know i mean it just kind of makes sense it's the same physics whereas a screen is is a very different thing full of distractions and and full of problematic stuff for how your eyes even work so it's as easy as just doing that gosh if you're listening to this and you want a top five books you should go out and buy just like email Ryan he'll be like here's some to get into and it's as easy as that and all you have to do is just like borrow someone else's advice to buy one and pretty quickly you'll go down your own rabbit hole and the journey will become your own and you'll you'll steer yourself up there it doesn't take much to getting your driver's license to control your creative diet doesn't take long you'll be in charge before you know it you know but yeah like doing that and, and you'll find that the majority of that stuff that you're looking at if it's beautiful it has been shot on film because it comes from an era an age this stuff was revolutionary that, that people were shooting film like the last half of the 20th century it was this remarkable time and it's not to say that there's anything better you know that the analog or digital worlds are the ones better than the other but there's some things about analog processes that you can learn and bring into your work that are pretty remarkable and that have got us to where we are now. And it would seem a shame to, you know, if you're wondering how did someone make that work, a lot of it is going to be about the ideas of analog processes that we that, that you might not have touched base with before, which is stuff like, you know, if you've only got 12 shots on a roll of film in your volley and you're going out to shoot on the street, well, then you're already experiencing a sense of constraint. And there's good things and bad things about that, but the good things are that you really are having a pretty fucking close look at things with your eyes. You're not testing things out with your cameras. What does the camera see? So like, what do you see? How do you see this? How does it work? Like, are you going to blow one frame of your 12 frames on this or not? Is the light fantastic? Is the story fantastic? All of those things. It's as simple as that, you know. And I don't want to turn it into cliches of like, film makes you slow down or films, but it's just like, it's a different thing. And you start to realize that a lot of the work that you love that, that's very inspiring that you look at has this X factor to it because of the constraint of this medium, but also because like it's a collaboration with an incredible chemistry company called Kodak or Fuji and with a lab of people who really know what they're doing. So it's kind of like you sort of set up to win here. Like you're using some beautiful optics hitting some incredible chemistry. It's going away to a lab that really knows what they're doing and you're getting the end result back. It's this pretty incredible collaboration and the chances of you winning are maybe a little bit higher than you go out and buy a digital camera and download Lightroom and just forge on in. So all of those things. Yeah, that analogy like you just said then, man, is like, yeah, like get a digital camera and you've just got like this unlimited capacity or all sliders moving left and right and it's like you can completely deform an image but you shoot on film and you kind of have this stock and it's like this baseline and this is not saying exactly where it's supposed to be but this is a great start for it to be at 
rather than like you said you know the digital camera and the sensor reading this and then take a photo and then if you've looked so much at Instagram and you've seen these, I don't know, these muted tones because that's the new thing, it's like your eyes probably going to start telling you or the voice in your head's going to say, you know, all these greens are going to go down, like forget greens and reds and all this. And that's kind of what you're getting at, right? Like constraining yourself, hey? Sometimes the digital world is there's just too many. Like we think that options are great, you know? We need all the, all the fucking options. And there's too many options. And it turns out that really, really good things live in this band right here. All the really, really good things you've ever seen fall into this band. They're not out here. But digital's like, here's all of these options. You're like, okay, cool. Well, look, there must be incredible, undiscovered amazingness everywhere. And it's like, no, it's just in here. It's just right in here. And when you're in an analog process, when you're shooting film, for example, like, Film just lives in here, you know. So you've basically, you've basically limited yourself straight away to, to at least be in the ballpark of good. Um, so you don't have to be worried about all this other crazy stuff out here. And, you know, the constraint's good. But it's also like there's plenty of incredible things about, about the digital world, which means that you can, I mean, you can shoot at night. You can rescue images that are, would be unrescuable if they were shot on film. It's a hell of a lot cheaper. Like there's all this other stuff, you know, you can fix problems and solve problems. So it's not either or, but there is a lot of things about the analog world, which as you investigate it and you start to discover work that really inspires you from the era that we're talking about, that you go, ah, oh, I see. I see the color palette. I see why we're, we're sort of calibrated to be, to think that this is great, you know, because this is great. This is the stuff that is, that is, that is really great. And this is how storytelling looks. I mean, um, often like with, we often talk about your audience, you know, what your audience sees as being normal because you're always making something for an audience. You're using color and tone and composition to communicate some ideas and a story and you're communicating it to people, whether it's a massive audience or just a couple, to people who are used to looking at things. And the thing is that the stuff that they're used to looking at, the audience is used to looking at, is only like benchmark blockbuster movies made by the biggest geniuses you're ever going to see. Like people are calibrated by watching like TV series on Netflix, going to the movies. And all of the people who are making this stuff are very fucking good. Like they're very good at what they do. And so it's easy to think about your audience is being dumbed down. Oh, they're just pundits. What do they know? No, they're calibrated by the greatest people in the industry making the greatest visual content you can imagine. You need to up your game. And so your audience is calibrated by fantastic filmmakers and TV people and all sorts of stuff. And those people are referencing usually analog processes. They're usually referencing and being inspired by like great films, you know, stuff that's shot on film. This is why the analog stuff is really important. And yes, digital means that you can push that out. But it's like, if you haven't think about the stuff that your audience is watching and looking at every day, you know, during the lockdown, they just would have watched the shit out of Netflix. You're going to realize that like, oh, you should be afraid. The bar's pretty high. You know, you need to be really thinking, well, how am I calibrating myself? They might be better calibrated than you are. I mean, I remember like sitting with a bunch of people like watching Fargo, maybe season three of Fargo or something. And the DP and the director on that season were like like massively influenced by Eagleston and it was the William Eagleston color palette. And I remember like just a bunch of you know, people who never really looked critically at stuff before just being like, well, that's cool. And then showing them like some William Eagleston stuff and they just be like, oh, that, that makes me feel the same way that Fargo makes me feel. Like, well, this is the same thing. And it's just like, holy shit, no pressure. But like 
these people are basically inspired and calibrated by William Eagleston, one of the greatest photographers of like the last half of the, of the 20th century. Like I need to up my game. These are people I'm making stuff for. And so I, I think there's some of that stuff in it. It's very easy to think that, that you're an artist and you're, you're the master of this craft trying to make something for people who are just consumers. But often in this game, the people who are consuming your work, the last thing they watched was made by someone with a $20 million budget or a $200 million budget who was one of the 20 greatest filmmakers of all time. That's why you should pay attention. 100%. So do you ever find your work side going too far left, too far right? Do you ever have to bring yourself back and recalibrate yourself? I mean, from the outside in, it looks like you've got it all down, but we know with business and creative art that... Like all the time, I often feel like like doing what we do, you know, being out dealing with available light and a different bunch of people in different circumstances. Yeah, and it might it might follow the same script all the time, but it's, it's always wild. The weather's different, the light's different, someone's having a melt. Also, it's like sailing sailing a boat, you know, with the wind constantly changing and the waves constantly changing. You, you're constantly like on the bloody tiller and pulling the sails in and just steering this thing because you know how to sail a boat. You know the course that you're aiming for, but you're always kind of having to adjust things. And it's really easy if you take your eye off the ball to find that you, you got a little bit off track, you know, or that you were using the light in a different way or you'd fallen into a rut or you were, yeah, you just, so often, I, I think with our work, the thing I'm always saying is just like, stop trying to use this. You don't need tricks to solve this. Just do a good job. Years ago, we were at a friend's workshop in, in New York. Aaron Huey speaking there, who's like a, a Nat Geo guy. And, you know, he does these big longitudinal stories like the New York Times and National Geographic and stuff. You know, he'll shoot a thing over three or four or five or seven years. Like, he, you know, he shot this seven-year longitudinal project on, on alcoholism and, and suicide on Navajo reservations and, and Native American reservations in, in the U.S., and, you know, it took him like three years to even be allowed to bring a camera into some of these situations, you know. So it's just like building these relationships and doing all this stuff. And I remember being there and, and someone asked him, like, you know, he's, he's like the, king, the last speaker. Someone asked him, like, oh, what? A bunch of wedding photographers. And, like, one more question, one last question that you can ask this genius guy. And some dude puts his hand and it's just like, oh, what, what gear do you use? And, like, we were just like, like that question? Like, that's... But he answers it and he just says, and he's just like, because you know, you're hoping that someone's going to be like, tell like, what's your philosophy or whatever, or this, this big principles thing. What gear do you use? And yeah, he just says, well, you know, if it's a fast job, if it's a quick job, if I've got to go out and shoot a thing for a week, I'll take a two camera bodies and I'll take, you know, like a three lenses, you know, like a 24, a 35, and a 50, whatever I'll do. But then he was just like, but. I think his thing was like, yeah, lots of things to solve problems, you know, like a couple of other things, zoom a few little bits and pieces. But then he just goes, but if the story is really important and if I'm going to invest a hunk of my life in it, then I'm just going to take one camera and one lens because if the story's good, the tricks can just fuck off. And it is stuck with me. Like we were down the back, like I, you know, I remember like sitting with like Jonas and just we were like beating the like sitting at the bar, just like, Oh, you know, it's just like biggest mic drop ever. Like that's a game changer. And it's like, it's so true. Like if you really, if you're focused on the story, if you're trying to do a really good job of telling the story, slowly bit by bit, the tricks fall away. You know, slowly bit by bit, you're just like, just keep it simple. Just use the light really well. It's kind of like being a great 
like seeing an Italian nonna cook you a beautiful meal in Bologna somewhere and someone's, you know, in their kitchen. And all it is is three simple ingredients and the ingredients are incredible. And because they're incredible, they don't do much with them and they tell this beautiful story and food. And you're just like, how is this so delicious? And there's nothing to it, but it's incredible. And she just got out of the way and was just like, here's these there's tomatoes that I grew and some pasta I made and it's, it's eggs and flour and tomatoes. That's all this meal is. And it's amazing. But, and the ingredients are so good. She's just like, boom, my drop, get out of the way, let them be. That's the, it's, it's like Aaron Huey. If the story's really good, just simply do your job and use the light really well and be invisible and get out of the way. And so often when I find that we're losing our way and we're losing track, we're not really sailing the ship very well. It'll be because I've been I've started to get obsessed with tricks. I'm like, I'm trying to like put myself into it. I'm trying to like use some tricks to solve a problem that's not there. You know, I'm trying to use this fancy lens to do this thing or this new technique or I'm doing whatever or I'm processing, processing a certain way or I'm trying to be super fucking dramatic. And it turns out that you just like just get the basics right. Just put a 15 mil lens on your camera. You see the light, use the light, see the people use the people, get them to let you be there. I mean, the most important thing in the game that we do is you, you have to be in the room. So probably the biggest thing you've got is like, forget the fucking gear, dude, and, and make sure that you're in the room. Make sure that you're the, the calm personality, the empathetic person, the one who's someone's new best friend. That means that you're in the room when the important stuff happens. That's that's it. Not like, what gear do I need? How do I, how am I going to be the greatest fucking photographer in the world? It's like, no, just be the greatest person in the world. That means you're in the room. So I think that's the thing. It's always for us about keeping it simple, just being, just use the light really well. Is there light? There's good light here. There has to be good light here. You've seen me through this lockdown struggling away with this black backdrop and a setup that we use sometimes in our studio. The setup got like these wood clamps clamped to the ceiling of our house with this backdrop <laughs> in this place. Trying to figure out, like, you know, and it, the light bounces off this, like, house next door through this little sliver of light in the window. Trying to figure out, that, and you see, and you just go, this is my light. I know this. This is Caravaggio light. I know how to make something good out of this. And yet not making something good out of it and being like, why? And then finally you're like, you just persevere. And when you finally just get simple and stop trying to be tricky, you're like, ah, there it is. I'm just back to playing a natural game. So I think that's the thing, keeping it simple. But having said that, it's a very normal human thing to make things complicated. It's a very normal human thing to look for the, to think that the gold, to think that your expertise, that being a professional and being really good at something means that you know how to do the complex, complicated stuff. But more often than not, what it means is that, that you know, you know the principles, you know how simple it works to be able to make it work all the time. I think that's what being a professional is. It means that like whatever's going on, you can get the same result. And most of that is just understanding simple. So, Saif, I want to flip it around. I want, like, we've gone through so much. You've given, I mean, I said at the start of this, mate, like, I knew you'd give so much. You always do. But if you could share three simple implementable tasks that, you know, photographers or new photographers or even people that have been in the industry for a while, I know Creative Diet's hopefully going to be one of them. Right now, what they can do is, I mean, you've been in the industry for how long? I mean, you've been photographing for a while now, right? 
11 or 12 years, you know. There you go. But like, you're, I mean, you just mentioned like during COVID-19, you're still doing practical things. You've got a backdrop set up at home and you're, you're creating and you're trying to create this like new thing. And a lot of people, as you know, Sai, in the industry will be kind of just complacent or on that infinite scroll. And that's cool if they enjoy that. But obviously you're looking at inspiring yourself as well. But do you have like three implementable things that people can do to absolutely up their game? You've given me about 33, but if we can nail it down to three. Yeah, I like take control. So you need to take control of whatever you're doing. It's really easy for this, for all this stuff to be passive or to be fed to you. And whether that's your creative diet, whether what's going on with your business, whatever the measurable things are, it's easy that it's often actually passive. Take control. All that does is just, just, just plan it. Get a whiteboard, get a thing, get something that you can have up in front of you, however you think and work and look at things and plot taking control, plot your trajectory. And that just looks like this. I'm here and I want to be here. And what's the line look like? You know, how do we get there? How many years does it take? How many months does it take? And that could be in your business. That could be in your creative and in, in your output and what your art is. It could be in the, the relationships with people you've got around you. You know, that maybe you don't feel supported and you're like, I want to feel supported. Supported is here and I'm here. But take control and take responsibility for your creative diet. Take responsibility for whatever it is. You know, just put both hands on the wheel and be like, I'm in charge of this and I can steer this. And that's the number one thing. Whatever the thing is that's frustrating you right now, just take control of it. It's as simple as that. That would kind of be like number one. I think number two, the creative diet thing is, is a really, really vital thing. And you don't have to bite off a massive meal to do this. You just have to take one thing. Switch off everything else and take on one thing. You don't have to switch off the internet stock why are you messaging people and all that sort of stuff, you know? But just put it in the place where it should be. You know, if it's a way that keeps you connected, if using social media apps is a way that keeps you connected with people, it's fucking brilliant. In your brain, go, cool, these things I use to stay connected to my crew. Brilliant. But my inspiration for the next three months, I will get from here, for example. And so, yeah, put that, put it in that. Figure that out, you know, just like figure out where you're going to get that from and then just start to plot it. Go, okay, well, what does that look like? For three months, I will let me see if I've got some friends and we can go and watch a film. We'll watch three films. We'll watch each one of them twice. So that's six times going to movies or on your laptop or whatever. But you know, go to the movies, hey. Six times go to the movies and each time we'll go out for a, for a beer or a wine or sit on the couch and, and we'll like, we'll thrash it out and we'll discuss it. Because if you know that you're going to have to discuss something with someone, I mean, it sounds a bit geeky film club, but you know, if you know you're going to have to discuss something with someone, you're going to fucking pay attention. Otherwise, you're going to be the quiet one sitting there being like, whatever, you know, do that. Take control of your creative diet. And then the last thing that I would say that can really make probably the biggest impact on you is you need a crew. Like you need to get a crew. It can be two or three people or whatever, but you need to get a crew. And these are the people that you can go to when you're having an absolutely shit day and you think that you're wondering why you are even bothering doing this. They're the people that you can go to when you've just shot something that you absolutely fucking think is a home run, but you don't want to be a dick and put it up on the internet. They're the people who you can ask when you're frustrated by someone. They're the people you can who you can go to when you've got someone who is disappointed in the work that you've done for them, you know, and you're just like, and you're having a meltdown and you just need to vent. They're the people who they can do all of that. You can be that for them as well. Like you need a crew. And the biggest thing that having a good crew does for you is it gets everything out from in here and it gets it 
out of your mouth. Like the way that your brain is, is wired is that the outer part of it, you know, you've got two hemispheres and you've got an inner and outer. The outer part of it is the problem solving part of it. The inner part of it is like the thought origination part of it. And the only way those two bits communicate is by it getting back out and then back in through your senses. That's why when you verbalize things, you solve problems, you know? That's why when you, you go to something, it's like, hey, I've got this thing. And then it comes out of your mouth, goes back in through your ears, and you've solved it. And you're like, geez, thanks for your help. I'm at, you know, it's like, it's why verbalizing is so important. Verbalizing or, write, or writing shit down or journaling or whatever. It's just get, you've got to get it out and then back in to solve the problems. And so the easiest way is to just have a good crew. Have some good people. Drop the hierarchy and just just put it online. And you'll know your people when you find them. You'll totally know your people when you find them. And it's nothing necessarily to do with taste or age or experience. It's just like it might be a shared love of, of one album, a shared love of a certain bean, a shared love of a certain coffee roaster. But, yeah, get a crew. So those are, those are the three things. You know, take control. Like your creative diet is key and get a crew. I love it, mate. We're so glad you have taken the time to tune in. If you found this episode useful, why not share it with a friend and be the light someone may need? Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. This would mean so much to us. Ryan would love to connect with you beyond this episode. The links to everything and anything that was spoken about are in the show notes at www.escapingtheordinarypodcast.com. Talk to you next week.